Well, good morning. Welcome back to our Bible Talks. We've not done one of these for quite some time. Uh, if I remember correctly, we finished up Exodus 15 maybe close to a month ago. Um, and obviously we had Christmas and New Year's and all of that. Uh, but we're back, and the book I've decided to do is the book of 2 Peter. So go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Peter if you would. Uh, 2 Peter I love as a book. Um, it's, I think, the first book I ever taught through in my entire life. If we go back in time like close to 25 years now, uh, I kind of cut my teeth teaching the Bible at this little tiny country church. I've probably told you about it before, but you know, if you're ever driving around in the country and there's like cornfields all over the place and there's this little tiny old church building there, uh, that's where I basically learned how to preach and teach. Uh, I started going there to kind of shorten a long story, because my now wife went there, and I was interested in getting to know her better, uh, but they had nobody to teach Wednesday night Bible study, and they came to me and they said, hey, you're going to seminary, why don't you start teaching Wednesday night Bible study? And at first I was like, I'm not interested in doing this at all, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not here to, <laughs> this, this is embarrassing, but I basically thought, I'm not here to serve, I'm here to be served, which sadly I think a lot of people think, but um, you know, it's an attitude I had to repent from, but that was my attitude at the time. I had no good reason to not say yes, and again, I, I liked this girl that was attending there, and I thought, you know, uh, perhaps this might help my chances of getting to know her better. Uh, so I said, all right, I'll, I'll start teaching. And like I said, uh, the first book I taught in its completion, uh, if I remember correctly, I might be wrong, but the first book I taught substantially was the book of Second Peter, and I gained a ton out of it. I think Second Peter is a very neglected book. Uh, you know, a lot of people are familiar with First Peter and its themes on suffering and whatnot, but when it comes to Second Peter, uh, people, you know, for some reason, it just totally ignore it. Uh, so that's Lord willing. We're going to be going in the next few weeks. The book is only three chapters, so obviously considerably shorter than Exodus. I don't anticipate spending, you know, uh, the entire year in it. Uh, so we'll see where we go after that. Because it's so short, I might do another New Testament book after that. Uh, you know, maybe some more chapters in the book of Mark. If you follow along with these each week, you'll remember that I uh, went through Mark for, I don't know, maybe what, six months or so, and then we took a break. I might pick up where we left off and continue further. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll just see how things go. The book of Second uh, Peter. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gift of your word. Your word is precious. It is life-giving. It is transformative. It tells us about our sin and our need for a Savior, and it also tells us about that Savior, Jesus, who came down from heaven to seek and to save the lost. Lord, please bless now this new study of Second Peter. We pray for much illumination, much conviction, much repentance, much mind renewal. We do pray that you would literally meet with us through your word in these times. Help me to make comments that helpfully bring out the meaning and the intent of your word. And for all of us, give us grace to apply to our lives that we might be doers of your word, not hearers only. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Now I think I'm going to continue the format that I sort of... Uh, what's the word, sort of slid into in the book of Exodus, as opposed to reading the entire chapter or something like that. Read a couple of verses, make a couple of comments, read a couple of verses, make a couple of comments. That uh, approach seems to work well. Um, and to begin with, I'm just going to read like the first two, ver two, two words of first, uh, 2 Peter 1. Uh, so 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the Simon Peter that we know of from the Gospels. Um, and interestingly, we know an awful lot about this particular guy. Uh, you know, some of our uh, favorite stories from the Gospels are about Simon Peter. He's famous for putting his foot in his mouth, you know, saying crazy things that uh, Jesus would have to turn around and contradict him and say, what are you talking about? It's uh, this Peter who was with Jesus, denied him three the night of the crucifixion, the night before the crucifixion. Uh, this is the Peter who wrote 1 Peter, 
which again, if you've been with us for a while, 1 Peter was one of the first books I ever did in these Bible talks. You'll remember the entire motivation for these was to get more Bible into people's minds and hearts during the pandemic. Um, it's, it's kind of funny how much time has passed. I almost forget about this pandemic thing. But if you go back, like what, nearly four years ago, the entire world shut down, church sadly shut down. Um, and to supplement your souls and your faith, I started doing these little Bible talks. And again, 1 Peter is one of the ones that I went through. So the author of 1 Peter is the same author of 2 Peter. Uh, there is this whole argument, by the way, that 2 Peter is not written by Peter. It's, it's, it's like a forgery. Uh, I reject that wholeheartedly. I think that's nonsense. I think it comes from a totally different view of Scripture than what we believe here. I think the Peter that wrote 1 Peter is the Peter that wrote 2 Peter as well, the Peter of the Gospels. Uh, this is the Peter who made the great confession in uh, Matthew, I think it's 16, uh, where they say, you know, who do they say the Son of Man is? And Peter pipes up and he said, you know, some say Elijah, some John the Baptist, uh, but you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's this Peter who, in that very same passage, tries to then divert Jesus from the cross and says, oh no, Jesus, you're not going to the cross. And that's where Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan. Uh, like we said, this is the Peter that denied Jesus grievously the night before the crucifixion. You'll remember the cock crows and you know, there's the servant girl and all that, and, Je and Peter's like, I don't know who Jesus is. Uh, but also, this is the Peter that repented quickly after that and came back to Jesus. And if you read about the book of Acts, he's a central character in the first nine chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, you know, this is the guy that on Pentecost preaches that great Pentecost sermon interpreting what's taking place. This is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, the apostles are not drunk as, as ye suppose, but these guys are actually filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the apostle that you know, at the uh, gate, the, the beautiful gate of the temple heals the man, and, you know, he's leaping and dancing and praising God, and then, you know, he gets arrested and thrown in prison. So we know a lot about this particular guy. Try to keep that in mind as we read through Second Peter, because, in part, he will bring some of his biography in later on. We won't talk about that today, but later on he'll refer to some instances uh, that took place in the Gospels. Um, so obviously connect those, but that's also why I think the idea that this is a forgery written by somebody that's not Peter uh, just makes it blasphemous. If it's not written by the Peter that is claiming to be Peter and who's talking about instances that took place in his life, throw it out of the Bible. Uh, but if it does belong in the Bible, it's got to be written by Peter, uh, according to me. But do realize that you might read commentaries from time to time that claim Peter didn't read Second Peter, and uh, that, that's a bizarre, nonsensical idea that comes from scripture than what we would uh, believe here at Trinity. But anyway, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. It is interesting he mentions servant first, even though he's an apostle and this very well-known apostle. Now, I don't think he was like the first pope or anything like that, you know, this is, by the way, what the Catholic Church teaches, that he was the first pope, and then he conveyed his, his pope status on to his successors and, and whatnot, and that's why today, uh, the current pope, you know, they, they say he sits in the chair of Peter and all of that. Uh, you know, with all respect to our Catholic friends, honestly, that's, that's like nonsense. There's really not biblical evidence for that at all. He is a servant of Jesus Christ. Yes, yes he's an apostle, and yes, he was a prominent apostle, and yes, he's apostle, an apostle that the Lord used, you know, you know, quite a bit evangelistically to write a couple books of the Bible, uh, but he, he's definitely not a pope. Uh, and again, it catches my attention that he says, first, I'm a servant. Uh, I belong to Jesus Christ. I'm not here doing my own thing. I'm not here, you know, uh, laying out this vision for what the church is going to be. Uh, I'm here only insofar as I can serve Jesus. And you know, if 
Peter had that status. How much more do we? We who are not apostles, uh, we who are you know pretty ordinary sinners. You know, maybe we've sinned, you know, in the same manner that Peter sinned. Uh, nonetheless, we are at the end of the day servants of Jesus Christ. We're not our own. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, we honor God with our bodies. It's one of the things I'm going to think through with my kids and family worship tonight. We're going to, uh, Lord willing, you know, if the, if the Lord tarries and whatnot, we're going to think through that verse in 1 Corinthians where it says, you know, glorify God with your bodies. Uh, what does it mean to glorify God with your hands, with your eyes, you know, with your tongue? And I'm trying to get specific, but this is part of what it means to be the Lord's servant. You don't just serve the Lord in sort of this, you know, philosophical, abstract, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, I just think high flutant thoughts about Jesus, but you know that, that's the end of that. Uh, no, it, it works its way out in how I treat my neighbor, how I speak to my neighbor, how I work my job. All of that falls under the uh, umbrella of being a servant of Jesus Christ. And again, this is who we are as believers, and this is something that was uh, essential to Peter's very identity, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now moving on, continue in verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pause there. This is sort of your typical introduction to an, an, an epistle. Uh, some of these introductions, you know, they contain a lot of information that's further explained later on in the book. Uh, keep that little principle in mind. When you're studying an epistle, especially Paul's epistles, he'll sort of give you a sneak preview of the themes that he's going to talk about later on in the book in the introduction. Um, and you kind of get hints of that here. And, and what, what do you notice? You notice that the faith of the audience is the same kind as the faith of the Apostle Peter. Uh, this is a reminder, by the way, that in the Bible's uh, way of looking at it, uh, there really aren't like, how, I want to word this carefully, because there's different degrees of strength of faith, but there's not like different uh, essential types of faith. Uh, you know, it's not like the faith of the Apostle Peter is made out of gold, and my faith is made out of bronze, and then somebody else's faith is made out of lead or something like that. Uh, no, we're, we're talking about the same substance. It's faith. What is faith? Faith is trust in God, reliance on Jesus. Not, not reliance on myself, not confidence in anything that I've done, but confidence in another, specifically in Jesus. Now again, that faith can be stronger or weaker, uh, but it's still of the same substance. Uh, and that, that's again a fascinating thing for us to think through. Us modern Christians living here in you know 2024, uh, maybe Muncie, Indiana. Uh, I have the same type of faith as Peter, as Paul, as Moses, as David. Now again, their faith might be stronger than mine. Might mine might be like you know a mustard seed, but you know their faith might be considerably stronger. But at the same time, it's of the same substance. You, know, you might liken it this way. Uh, you know, I have the same number of muscles as like a great big bodybuilder. Obviously, my muscles are a whole lot smaller, but but they're of the same substance. You know, they're they're water and glucose and and whatnot, whatever muscles are made of. Uh, even though uh, that we're we're of the same substance, and you know, you you, you get what I'm getting at. Uh, so also, your faith, if you're a believer, uh, is the same kind of faith as the great heroes of our Bible stories. Uh, and when you get that, that can be such an encouragement because you often feel like you know, I could, I could never uh, tell my neighbor about Jesus. I, I could never uh, grow in my ability to love my spouse. I could never forgive this person that's sinned against me. I just don't have that faith. Uh, well, actually you do. You, you might need to exercise it and grow that muscle, but your faith is of the same substance as the faith of the great heroes of the Bible. 
Keep this also in mind when we think about modern day uh, heroes of the faith. Uh, I remember reading about, say, Jim Elliot, and you just when you when you read Jim Elliot's story, you do feel like you're almost reading the uh, biography of like an angel or something like that. He he is a man uh, from like a different universe. But what you've got to do is interpret Jim Elliot's biography through the lens of Scripture. And yes, Jim Elliot was an exceptional guy, uh, exceptional upbringing, uh, un, un, unusually courageous and whatnot. But at the same time, his faith was of the same substance as mine. And God can grow my faith, encourage my faith, strengthen my faith, so that maybe 10 years from now I'm doing radical things that I couldn't imagine myself doing now. Uh, you know, it is important, what we're seeing is important here for this purpose. If you think, say, Jim Elliot's faith is radically different than yours, you can never imagine yourself doing something like Jim Elliot. But if you think like, okay, actually we do have the same type of faith, this just might be significantly stronger, uh, you can envision yourself sort of pursuing that goal and maybe one day being as bold as Jim Elliot. Am I making sense? Anyway, to, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, now where does this faith come from? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now I remember the first time I studied that, that really caught my attention because that's not the way I would expect it to say it. Uh, that, by the way, is a very important Bible study principle. When the Bible says something in an unexpected manner, pay close attention to that. Uh, the, what I'm getting at is this. It's talking about our faith, where does it come from? We've obtained it by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, you would not expect that. For me, I would expect, you know, maybe by the grace of our Savior Jesus, the love. You know, when we think about faith, we, we do believe that that is a gift that God gives. God, you know, all of us, you know, we're dead in sin, uh, walking in darkness, loving darkness rather than light, but God turns the lights on and all of a sudden we trust in Jesus. You would think the source of that would be the love of God or the grace of God or the mercy. God, but instead, he points to the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, why would he do that? My best guess is actually tied into the book of Romans. You think about the book of Romans, Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God, same word, righteousness of God is revealed. According to God, the gospel is very much about God's righteousness. Now again, this surprises us, especially if we've been raised in Christianity where all we kind of talk about is love and grace and mercy. Now love and grace and mercy, obviously incredibly precious, very, very important. If you come to Wednesday Night Bible Study tonight, we're going to be talking more about the love of God. Uh, so huge concept, but also maybe just as important to the gospel is the righteousness of God. Uh, what am I getting at there? God can't save by faith without a substitutionary sacrifice while remaining righteous. Let me say that again, because what we're getting at here is kind of the heart of what's called Protestant evangelical Christianity. Uh, God can't save by grace through faith without a substitutionary sacrifice and remain righteous at the same time. Uh, basically, somebody's got to be uh, punished for our sins. Our sins are so great that they can't be just brushed under the rug. If God just brushed our sins under the rug, he would not be righteous. Uh, we get this in extreme examples. You know, you think about a murderer, some, some sort of wild rapist, for, for a judge to just sort of say, big deal, you know, yes, you've committed this sin, but don't worry about it, you know, go off and be free, be forgiven, you know, enjoy your life. If any judge did that, that would be a severe case of injustice, and hopefully there'd be like, you know, protest and outcry. How can they, we, we need this judge off the bench? This judge just you know, totally recognized this person is guilty of murder, guilty of rape, guilty of child molestation, but they just let him go free. That is unjust. This sin must be righteously dealt with. 
realize that when we come to God, God's got to justly deal with every single sin, not just the big ones, you know, not just murder and, and so forth, but every single sin. Every sing, single sin of, uh, of a human is an act of defiance against infinite majesty. Uh, so, you know, think about what we call lesser sins. Uh, you know, in reality, what we call, you know, kind of like white lies and whatnot, th- these are still very grievous sins in God's sight that, that infuriate him. Uh, but think about something, you know, like, you know, cutting corners on your taxes, a little white lie, uh, you know, you, you're supposed to be somewhere, but you weren't there, so, you know, you, you get your coworker to lie and say you were there when you weren't there. You know, things that we consider sort of like minor infractions are actually in God's sight serious sins. Very, very serious sins. And simply one of these sins not forgiven will result in eternity in hell, which is, you know, base your severity, base your, determine how serious a sin is, not on how it makes you feel, uh, but on how God deals with it. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people base how bad an action is based on their conscience and how bad it makes them feel. Problem with that is, actually many problems with that is first, I'm not God. I'm not, I'm not the one to judge how bad a sin is. But furthermore, I have the capacity to harden my conscience in these sins so that sins that are actually incredibly bad don't really bother me. And, and this happens with some of these mass murderers. They get so accustomed to what they're doing, they're not bothered at all by their, their, their sins. So don't make how a sin makes you feel, the basis of its evil, make what God says about it and how God acts toward it the basis of how evil it is. And if a very sort of insignificant sin that you know we, we consider insignificant, I'm, you know, if you're listening to this and not watching, I'm using the famous air quotes, uh, but you know, something like gossip, laziness, uh, you know, just squandering my time on like endless hours of binging Netflix, you know, that if it doesn't bother you, think through what's God's response to this. You know, because Jesus says on the day of judgment, we'll give an account for every careless word we speak. So it might not really bother you, but God cannot ignore that while remaining righteous. It must be justly dealt with. Now, this is where the cross comes in. Jesus is a substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus on the cross is literally bearing the righteous judgment of God for our sins in the place of all who would believe. Uh, that's why, you know, if you come here on Sundays, occasionally I'll describe the cross as the judgment day for Christians. And our judgment day has already taken place if we believe it took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. And here's what happens. What all of this means is your sins need to be righteously dealt with, and they'll be righteously dealt with one way or another. Either by you going to hell and enduring the righteous judgment of God for that sin forever, or by you embracing Jesus and his cross, and that's how God can remain just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Uh, Incidentally, in our English translations, just and righteous, they sound very different. They're not you know, uh, derived from the same root or anything like that. But in the Bible, justice and righteousness are actually the same word. We just translate them differently because that's how the English language works. So when you're reading that verse in Romans, without Jesus' death, he could not be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. You could almost imagine it this way. God could not be righteous and the righteous fire of those who have faith in Jesus. So what happens is the second I put my trust in Jesus... I am declared righteous and God remains righteous. You know, it's really a beautiful thing. And this is why the entire gospel is about the righteousness of God. Uh, Is the love of God there? Of course. The grace of God there? Of course. The mercy of God there? Of course. But again, without Jesus' death, God could not remain righteous while forgiving sinners. And I think that's what 
Peter is alluding to when he says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only way I can be saved by faith, uh, and it might be a very weak, small faith, the faith of a mustard seed, but the only way that I can be saved by such faith is due to the righteousness of God displayed in the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus, and now me being declared righteous by faith in Jesus, and that's how I'm saved. I realize a lot's going on here. Hopefully, if you're not getting all of this, it's sort of a uh, a foretaste, an a appetizer for you to dig into it deeply. Because for me, it, it just blows my mind that God has conceived of this way of salvation, whereby he gets the glory, I get the benefits. God remains righteous, I get declared righteous. And how do I get declared righteous? God gives me the righteousness of Jesus when I trust in him. It's as if God looks at me and treats me as if I had lived Jesus' perfect life. It's another facet here. And, and this is, again, why righteousness is just coming out of the gospel every which way. Uh, I used to illustrate it this way. Let's imagine, you know, my ring here is me. You know, when God sees me outside of Jesus, he, he sees me in all of my sins, all of my unrighteousness. And again, those unrighteousnesses make God really, really angry. Um, and if I die and stand before God in my unrighteousness, I'll be cast into hell forever. Jesus over here lives a perfect righteous life, never sins in thought, word, or deed, perfectly obeys the law of God. Like he says in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he did fulfill the law down to every jot and tittle, obeyed it perfectly. Here's what happens uh, in the gospel. Jesus takes my sin. That's why he dies on the cross. So imagine all of my unrighteousness placed on him and he suffers for it on the cross. But when I trust in him, his righteous life covers mine. You see, let me, let me illustrate that again. His righteous life covers me. It's as if God takes away my filthy robes and gives me these beautiful, pristine robes of Jesus' righteousness so that now when God looks at me, he does not see me and my sin, but he sees Jesus' righteousness covering me like a cloak or like a shield. And that's why God can treat us as righteous, even though, truth be told, we're far from it. I mean, every day I do unrighteous things. I, I hate the fact that I do that, but every day I do. But how is it that God can view me and treat me as righteous? It's because I'm covered by Jesus' righteousness. Hopefully some of this is making sense. And, you know, two real quick applications from this. First, if you're not currently covered by Jesus' righteousness, you know, if you are not a saint in Christ, if you've not been crucified with Christ and resurrected with Christ, come to Jesus now. Like, this is the most urgent, important thing you'll ever do in your entire life. Come to Jesus now. Trust in him. Ask God to give you, by grace, by sheer grace, the gift of Jesus' righteousness, so that when you stand before God, you will not be judged and condemned for your sins, but treated as a righteous saint, only because of what Jesus has done. Second application, if you're a believer, I'd strongly encourage you to grow in your understanding of what I'm talking about here. Nothing has brought me more joy, hope, confidence, you know, especially in a world that's pretty rough, uh, you know, we, we, personal conflicts, you know, family challenges, financial challenges. I mean, this world is pretty rough, but if you really get what I'm talking about deep into your bloodstream, that can give you a joy that can enable you to persevere through your trials, uh, even while recognizing they're pretty difficult. You know, it reminds me of what Paul says, I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing. How can I be both sorrowful and yet always rejoicing? It can happen when, yes, I recognize the difficulty of the trials that I'm going through, but what brings me joy is the fact that I have been counted righteous in Jesus. I am loved with this perfect love. Uh, and Jesus, like he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. You really get that, and that'll enable you to be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Last thing I want to point out to you, uh, notice 
what it says here, and, and some of us might read this so quickly, not realizing how strong a proof of Jesus' deity this verse is. But what does it say? To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of who? Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, it's interesting, like I've mentioned before, I used to do an awful lot of evangelism with Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. I've kind of reevaluated the... Um, my, my methods there, did I waste too much time there? Would it have been better just to lay out the gospel uh, and then say, like, you know, if you want to talk about this further, uh, get in touch. I'd be uh, delighted to discuss it further. But, I mean, we went round and round and round and round for hours, you know, debating the proper translation of 1 John 1, 1. And, you know, at the time, I'm talking, you know, many years ago. I didn't know Greek at the time. So, to be totally honest, I didn't really know what I was talking about. Uh, but, you know, I, I, we were, what, what, what I was always searching for was this clear verse that proved that Jesus was Almighty God. And you know, again, we'd go to John 1 1, we'd go to Colossians 1, we'd go to, you know, sometimes Hebrews 1, going around and around and around. Well, look here at verse 1 here. How is Jesus Christ described? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can you think of a plainer way to say that Jesus is fully God? I can't. Uh, put this verse sort of in your arsenal of Verses that clearly teach that Jesus is God, yes, of course, John 1, 1 does, and Colossians, I think, does, and Hebrews definitely does, and you know, much of the book of Revelation does, and uh, actually you can find lots of passages in the Old Testament that talk about the Lord, you know, Jehovah coming, and so forth. Uh, but add to that this verse here, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, fully declaring that Jesus is God incarnate. Uh, to see Jesus is to see God in the flesh. Well, I suppose that's enough for today. Uh, I don't know if I've ever covered just one verse, but uh, you know, I suppose there's a first time for anything, everything. Uh, how can we pray this back to God? I mean, a lot of things come to my mind as far as prayer requests. Thank you, God, that you conceived of a way whereby you can be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Without Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, God could not forgive our sins. But because of his substitutionary sacrifice, uh, the chief of sinners can be forgiven. Uh, Lord, let's Let's pray, Lord, deepen our understanding and our appreciation of this. Like uh, Ephesians talks about, open the eyes of our hearts that we might comprehend with all the saints the depth and breadth and love, uh, height and depth of the love of God in Christ. Uh, you will, or at least you could, hopefully some of you will, explore these ideas for the rest of your Christian life, going deeper, being filled with more and more joy, filled with more and more awe, um, and you'll never get to the end of it. I remember that old hymn one of my teachers really loved. Um, I, can't, I, I, I can't remember the name of the hymn right now, but it says something like, you know, if, if the ocean were ink and every stalk on earth a quill to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. And I remember thinking like, that's an awful lot of hyperbole. I mean, you're, but no, actually the more I've dug into that, the more, the more I see that that hymn is actually not even uh, fully conveying the idea. You will, you could explore the riches of God's grace and the love of God displayed in the gospel, you could easily explore that four hours a day for the rest of your life and not even begin to get to the end of it. So let's pray for grace uh, that we would explore these things, that we treasure these things, that the Spirit would open our minds uh, to stand in awe of these things because they will motivate you to love, joy, good works like nothing else. Uh, and then let's praise God that our Savior is uh, our God and Savior. Uh, he's not an exalted angel. He's not a man like us. Uh, he's God in the flesh, and that's why he's able to reconcile us to God. We need a mediator who's both fully God and fully man, and thank God Jesus is that mediator. Let's pray for these things and we'll be done. Pray with me. Oh Lord, thank you for the joy of studying your word. Thank you for this little epistle of Second Peter. Uh, again, bless our studies, working our way through this book. 
Father, we do thank you for the beauty and the wisdom displayed in the gospel that you conceived of a way whereby you could be just and the justifier. You could be righteous and the righteous fire of those who have faith in Jesus. Uh, Lord, this is totally unique to Christianity, and we thank you for it. Lord, please deepen our understanding of the riches of your grace in Jesus. Lord, move us to awe, move us to explore these things further, to read the great Bible passages, to believe them. And we do pray that that would just overwhelm us with love and, and delight that you would love sinners like us. And we do pray that that would motivate us to love and good works. Lord, for any that might be listening today that have not yet fled to Jesus for the gift of righteousness, we pray that today might be the day. Move in their hearts right now uh, that they would recognize their sin, but recognize the incredible gift of God which is in Jesus and embrace that gift with faith right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day.